We're going to start a new sermon series uh, today, and so uh, in order to start this, I'm actually going to read the introduction from an article that was written in 1915 uh, by Arthur Westmayer, uh, and he wrote an article entitled the, Psycho- the Psychology of Fear Considered in Its Relation to Human Conduct. So this is the introduction of the article. He said, from the beginning of human thought, fear has been regarded with contempt. To fear, to be afraid, is considered the earmark of cowardice. And all the world is said to love a lover, so all the world scorns a coward. Since, and because it occupies in our estimation such an unenviable position, it serves a useful purpose. Since fear is considered contemptible, man tries to divest himself of it. He is ashamed of its existence. He hates its profoundest and most beneficent manifestation. Yet the truth is that this useful emotion occupies an ignominious position unjustly and should be lifted by a more comprehensive understanding to a plane of eminent respectability. So what Westmere goes on to do is, is talk about how fear is often viewed as a negative. And it's this aspect of shame and embarrassment. And again, nobody wants to be considered a coward. Nobody wants to be afraid. But he goes on and he says, you know, there is a good place of fear in our lives. Not all fear is bad. Some fear is healthy. And that's what he he further explains in the rest of the article. And fear is a human emotion, right? It's a very powerful emotion. We've all probably experienced fear in some capacity in our lives at some point in our lives. Uh, I, I remember as a kid, right, playing the game hide and seek. Right? And somebody would try to find you, and then you'd go and hide, and there was that, that sense of fear that, right, they're, they're going to find me. And so what starts to happen? <laughs> right? And your breathing gets really, really loud, and you're like, they're going to hear me breathing. So then you try not to breathe, which is an awful idea. <laughs> right? But, but that's, that's fear, right? That's an emotion. Or I remember when I, when I was younger as a kid, I was always afraid that possibly, you know, there was some sort of monster, right, in my room or under the bed. There never was, right? But I would have this, this fear, and I'd be like, Mom! Mom! And nothing would come out until finally I had that courage, and I would scream, and my parents would come running in, and they'd say, what's wrong? And I was like, I'm afraid. And then they'd take care of me, and I realized it was absolutely nothing, right? But again, fear is very powerful. But we also have to understand, you know, fear is a God-given emotion, right? Um, And so if we don't handle fear appropriately, it, it becomes a problematic in our lives. Just like anything, right? God gives us a lot of things, and if we don't manage it the right way, and we don't use it for the way that God intended, it becomes very difficult and it becomes a struggle for what we're going through. And, and so our, our brains have been designed with this idea of healthy fear, right? It helps keep us out of danger. Uh, we were out west again this summer, and I saw healthy fear all over the place. And it was good. We went out to the Grand Canyon, and you could see it. We'd, you'd be going on a trail, and there were some people that were just hugging that wall, right? And that's a healthy fear. And I'll tell you, there were a lot of parents that that moment that their kid got close to the edge, oh, that hand went out like right in reflexes, right? And we did that a ton. Because, again, as parents, there was that fear that if my child got too close to the edge, 
would they fall off, right? That is healthy fear, and that is perfectly good. And that, that's, again, that's what God designed for us to have. But when our fears become misplaced and we give them too much attention and, and they become unhealthy, fear has a very negative and powerful situation in our lives. Uh, matter of fact, it, it could be the point that unhealthy fear becomes debilitating. Uh, unhealthy fear can be detrimental. It can paralyze a person to the point that people won't even leave, won't get out of bed. They won't leave the house. And that unhealthy fear ultimately can ruin a relationship and it can ruin a person's life. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this idea of fear. And we're going to look at the first couple of weeks. What are the things that we fear that we shouldn't be afraid of? And then we'll spend the last two weeks talking about what is the things that we should fear. Again, in a very biblical way, in a very understanding of a healthy way. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 23. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 36 through 53. Luke 24, uh, 36 through 53. Now, it's going to take me a little bit before I get to that, because I, I have to set the context of this passage. Okay, So I'm going to walk you through some biblical history here. Okay, so uh, again, long ago, God speaks to Abram, Abraham, and, and he says, I'm going to bless you with a child. And this child is going to come and he's going to be the savior of the world. Okay, and then God reiterates that promise to, to his lineage, right? So he, he, tells, um, he, he tells Isaac the same thing, and then he tells Jacob, and then eventually he tells David, and he says, David, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be the king of this world. And then David eventually has Solomon. And then Solomon goes, and he makes a temple. And that temple, in this magnificent glory, becomes the dwelling place of God. And this is where God is going to reside amongst his people. And so, as, as they've created this temple, though, for the Israelites, there comes this feeling that this temple is kind of like this magic amulet. That as long as the temple exists, and as long as God is in that temple, nothing bad can happen to them. And so as the nations are all raging around them and all of these different civilizations or empires, the Israelites felt confident that we have the temple of God and God is there and nothing bad can happen to us. Well, the Israelites start to lose their way. They start to disobey God. And so God in his goodness sends the prophets and he reminds them and he says, guys, you guys are getting way off course here. I'm calling you back to obedience. I'm calling you back to repentance. And at the same token, as he was calling them back to himself, he was also having the prophets mention to them this idea of redemption and, and future hope that would come. Well, the Israelites didn't listen. And so the Assyrians come and they conquer the northern kingdom. And then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes and the Babylonians. And they conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And then they're all taken into captivity. And so this whole mindset of putting their hope in, 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 in the temple that they were protected has now been completely destroyed the way that the Babylonians destroyed them. So they're taken into captivity. And then the Babylonians are taken over by the Persians. And the Persians, under Cyrus the Great, actually says to the Israelites, you guys can go back home. You guys can go back and you can rebuild your temple. And so they go back. And during this time period emerges the Greek Empire. 
And then the Greeks come along, and then led by Alexander the Great and the Macedonians, they conquer the Persians. And then Alexander goes out and he tries to conquer the world. And then at a very young age, by the time he's 30, he, he's conquered this huge portion of land. And then he just dies unexpectedly. And his kingdom is broken up uh, into all of these different empires. And so at this point, one of those empires is led by Antiochus Epiphanes, which meant the illustrious one. But to the Jews, they called him Antiochus Empenes, which meant the mad one. Because Antiochus becomes one of the most hated individuals of Jewish history. And so what Antiochus does is he is out to Hellenize the Jews, meaning I want them to learn the Greek culture. I want them to get rid of their Jewish and cultural and religious beliefs. And so he takes the priests and he starts to retrain them. And he says, you're going to start performing pagan rituals. And then he outlaws a whole bunch of Jewish festivals. And then as he outlaws the Jewish festivals, he also says, you guys can't do circumcision anymore. And then he tells the Jewish people, he says, now you're going to start making sacrifices to the pagan gods. And he forces them to eat pig, which, again, if you don't understand, is a big no-no in the Jewish culture. And then he does something even more sacrilegious. He goes into the temple they rebuilt. And he sacrifices on the altar of God to Zeus. And at this point, the Jews have had it. And they said, we are done. And so they rise up and revolt against, against their, their captors and against this, this authority. And this becomes known as the Maccabean Revolt. And they win. And so for about 100 years, Israel has this temporary moment of peace led by the Hasmoneans. Well, after about 100 years, two of the brothers that were in charge start to engage in civil war. And, and, and one of the brothers has the support of the Pharisees, which was the, the more populous group and really part of the common folk. And the other brother was led by the Sadducees, which was kind of like all the religious elite and a smaller number of people. Right. So you kind of had like the population versus the money and, and they're fighting each other. And along as this is happening, Rome starts to rise in power. And Pompey has been told to take care of the East. And so he shows up, and the brothers actually send messages to Pompey, and they go, we want you on our side. Can you help me win this war against my brother? And as they're sending messages, other people are sending messages saying, Pompey, can you just pick a side and end this civil war? It's just madness. And so Pompey realizes this place is a mess. And he decides he's going to go in in 63 BC and just take it over himself. And then after he conquers it, eventually they set up Herod the Great to be the king of Rome or the king of Israel. And just so you know, Herod the Great is not well liked. He, he's not considered a Jew like everyone else. And it's under Herod the Great that we will see the coming of the Messiah. Now, I understand that this was a lot of history that I just gave you. But this is really important because this is for a long time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have the 400-year period where nothing happens. There's no prophets. Nobody speaks on behalf of God. And the Israelites just slog their way through history, being conquered by one group after another, and the whole time holding on to this promise from Abraham saying, there will come a deliverer. 
There will come a Messiah. And they waited and they waited and they waited. And after all of these captivities that happened, that starts to emerge this idea that our Messiah will save us from these Gentile oppressors and he will come and he will destroy these people and he will put Israel back on the map in a place of prominence. That's what they believed their deliverer was going to come. They believed that their deliverer was a warrior king that was going to save them. And so they waited and they waited and they waited. And then Christmas happened. And then Jesus grows up. And Jesus begins his ministry. And he starts to do things that nobody had seen before. And so the first thing he does is he starts to speak with authority. Then he challenges the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And people are like, wow, did you hear him? Did, did you hear the way that he, it was like, it was almost like he wrote this. And then he uses this phrase, I am, seven times in the book of John. And he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. And that's such a significant phrase because when Moses is at the burning bush and he says, I'm supposed to go to my people and tell them that you sent me, who is it that sent me? And God says, just tell them I am. So in the minds of these people, Jesus is equating himself with God. And then he uses the phrase, the son of man, which harkens all the way back to when Daniel was in captivity in Babylon. And he says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming into the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. And they're thinking, is this the guy? Is, is this the Messiah? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? And Jesus isn't done. Because then he goes and he does all of his miracles. Right? And he heals the sick and he casts the blind. And, and he casts out demons. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then he does the unthinkable. And he, he tells the paralyzed man, he says, I forgive you of your sins. And everybody's like, oh, what? Only God has the power to do that. And then he says, you want, to, you want me to prove that I'm God? He says, get up and walk. And right in front of their eyes, he gets up and walk. And everybody's going, is this the Messiah? Is this the guy? Is this the one that we've been waiting for for like 400 years? He's finally here and he will overthrow Roman authority and we will be back at where God promised we would be. And so people are excited. They've been hanging on this promise. And so what do they do? They follow Jesus. They follow him wherever he goes. And they're, they're hanging on every word that he says. And then Jesus is arrested, and he's crucified, and then he's put into a tomb. And then everybody's going, we thought this was the guy. We thought this was the Messiah. What happened? And so everything that they had believed up to that point was shattered just like when the temple was destroyed and Babylon came in. So, now we come to Luke chapter 24. Okay, again, I had to set the context here. 
So you really understand what's happening in this passage. Okay, Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 38. While they were still speaking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, and they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? So Jesus dies, and now he's resurrected, and he makes himself known to the disciples. Okay? And so what do we have here? We have the disciples are all huddled together in this locked room, and they're afraid. And we see in John chapter 20, 19, it says that they were fearful of the Jewish leadership. What's going to happen to us? What happened to our Messiah? What happened to our Savior? We were supposed to be free. And so this death of Jesus was a huge letdown from them. And they're thinking, did we just hitch our horse to the wrong wagon? Did we get it wrong? What's going to happen? Are, are, are they going to come in and kill us? What are we going to do? And there they are, and they're scared, and they're terrified. There's this overwhelming sense of fear, and the door is locked, and Jesus just shows up. Now, let me just give you a quick little time right here of the resurrection. So the women go to the tomb, and it's empty. And they're told by an angel what has happened. And so they run off, they actually find the 11, they tell the 11, the 11 don't believe, but John and Peter go running off to see the tomb. And they see that the tomb is empty. And so as they continue back on their way, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, she appears to the rest, Jesus appears to the rest of the woman at another point, and then Jesus starts walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus. This is right before this passage here. And then these two guys finally realize they're in the presence of Jesus, and they go running back to Jerusalem, where they just came from. Jesus also appears to Peter, and now he's just appeared to his disciples in the locker room. So, so he's already appeared to several people before he gets to the disciples in the locker room. Okay? And they're, they're scared, and they think he's seen a ghost, which I would assume is probably a pretty normal reaction. Right? Most of us don't anticipate that dead people come back to life. And here's what we also have to understand. In the Jewish culture, they waited three days, and that was a big deal. Because waiting three days meant you were dead dead. All right? This wasn't just like, well, maybe he's not really dead. This was like, okay, now it's been three days. Now we definitely know he's dead, and there's no way he's coming back. Okay? But Jesus shows up. And so Jesus then, in their fear, says two things. He says, one, he says, peace be with you. And then he says, two, why are you troubled and why do you doubt? So the first thing is he offers peace to them. And this is the Hebrew word for shalom. And even today, that phrase shalom is a constant greeting and a normal goodbye in the context of, of normal language and culture. And it's much more than just the absence of, of conflict or violence. The word shalom kind of carries this holistic sense of well-being, both mentally and physically, uh, prosperity-wise. And so when he says, shalom, be with you, he's saying, I want you to have this complete sense of peace right now. Every part of you, mentally, physically, spiritually, everything about it, I want you to be comfortable. It's okay, guys. Okay? Calm down. It's okay. And I can see how this plays out, right? Jesus shows up in the room, 
And it, this is, to me, it's almost like a comedy movie right now. Jesus shows up, and the angelic lights are on Jesus, and the, the music is playing. And you would think, like, all the disciples are like, it's Jesus, right? And they're just staring. And then there's that one person, like, after, like, that, like, extended gap of time is like, it's a ghost! And then everybody panics and everyone starts running all over the place, right? And Jesus is like, oh, my gosh, guys, calm down. Calm down. It's me, Jesus, right? And so when he sees all this, though, he says, why are you troubled? And, and, and we know in Mark 16, when this happens, he, he re, when he appears to the 11 later, he says he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him. Jesus is rebuking the disciples right now and saying, what are you doing? Why this fear? Why this panic? But Jesus is good, is he not? He's gracious and he's merciful to us. And so he says, I get it. You're human. You are afraid. Let me help you understand. And he offers two things to them. One, he gives a physical testimony. He says, okay, guys, stop. Look, look, come here, come here, look. You see my hands? See my feet? You see the nail marks, right? It's me. And they're kind of like, oh, right? And then he says, okay, I'll help you out. Give me something to eat. Give me some, I'll, I'll eat it down. I'll wash it down. Because see, a ghost, a, ghost has a, phys, a ghost doesn't have a physical body, right? So I'm proving to you that I'm actually Jesus who resurrected. And they're kind of like, okay, okay. Wait, wait, maybe, maybe this is the guy. Okay, okay, hold on. And then Jesus goes, let me give you something else. Let, let me give you some scriptural testimony here, right? Because we all love the scripture. Now, uh, he, he goes on to say, Everything was explained in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And just so you know, the Hebrew Bible is, is set up differently than, than, than the Christian Bible. And so when he says the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, he's literally saying from, from, from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Everything in there has been pointing to this moment. Now, we certainly don't have time to cover every single passage of prophecy that spoke about this. But let me just encourage you, if you want a good passage, go back to Isaiah 53. So if you want to make a note of that and read it later, right, and you'll go, oh, <laughs> if they would have just read Isaiah 53, they probably would have understood, right? Um, and, and so he gives them the scriptural thing, but, but he sums it up with this, and he says, look, all of the scripture, one, the Christ had to suffer the Messiah, Right? This warrior king, yes, he was going to suffer. He was going to die and he was going to raise from the dead. And then after he rose from the dead, he would offer that repentance and forgiveness of sins. And this Messiah is going to be preached among the nations. All of the Old Testament was telling you this time and time and time and time again. I have been prepping you for this very moment. And as Jesus says this, he opens their minds and they have this aha moment where they're like, Jesus, it is you. And the rejoicing begins to happen. And so he says, what I want you to do is I want you to stay here. Okay. Uh, and so um, 
It says, look at my hands and my feet. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still didn't believe because of joy and amazement, he said, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it. And he said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written in me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed from power on high. So he says, you guys get it now. Stay here because there's a power coming. And we know that power is the eventual coming of the Holy Spirit. And so the last part of this, let me just finish this off. Now, understand there's a little bit of time gap here now, okay? We just don't go from that moment to this. But he says, when they led him out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. That's a really big distinction from what happened the first time. Right? Jesus leaves them a second time. And they don't go, oh no, he's gone again. What are we going to do? No, this time, they're like, he's gone. We worship you, Heavenly Father. Let's go back. We praise you, God. What happened to all that fear that was once there? It had been eradicated in the mind of the disciples. Here's why I, I'm doing this sermon series on fear. We got some pretty stressful times, don't we, right now? We've got some crazy political turmoil. We had the Capitol riots almost a year ago. Economic struggles left and right. People have lost their jobs. The border crisis. Afghanistan. Political divisiveness, where there's just our politicians who are to be leading this country are constantly at one another. We've got our social turmoil. There's all these race issues going on and race wars happening. Rioting, looting. Gender issues. Cancel culture. The fear that if I speak out anywhere, anywhere, I may lose my job. School board meetings. Have you guys seen these school board meetings? We ask our children to behave in an appropriate way. And at a school board meeting, it's some of the craziest behavior that I've seen. There's a lot of passion and there's a lot of emotion. I understand that. The whole medical issue. We're still living through COVID. People are getting sick. People are dying, family, friends, loved ones. We can't go visit people when they're sick. We can't go see our elderly folk in a nursing home for fear of COVID. Masks, mandates, vaccines, it just is piling on. And a few years ago, Tim was the pastor and no longer was, and then Larry stepped in. And then Larry got cancer and he passed away. And in the last two months, our three staff have resigned from their positions. 
And so we're sitting in a space right now where I know, because a lot of you have said this to me, God, what is going on? What is happening? God, you promised to us. God, God, you said you would be with us. And it doesn't feel that way. And it feels like chaos. And it is scary. And I am afraid of what is going to happen. And I think that's probably how the disciples felt, right? In that locked room. But you know what? Here's what I think is probably going on. I think that while the disciples hid and worried and fretted over what was going to happen, and we worry and we're afraid and we go, God, what's going on? I think God sits up in heaven and goes, my disciples, what's going on? Why are you so afraid? I don't understand it. And so just like for the disciples, we have to remember that Jesus has showed up for us. You know, when Jesus said, peace be with you, here's what we need to understand. What he was literally saying was not just peace, and I hope things are well, but he's saying, I am your peace. I am here with you physically right now in this room. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. See, the only way that we find peace in this world is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other way through salvation. There is no other way to eradicate fear in our lives unless we have the Savior and the Messiah who was promised back to Abraham long ago and matter of fact was told when Adam and Eve messed up that he would bring a Savior. And we see in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God transcends all understanding and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. You have peace when you have Jesus. And when you are worried, he says, just come back to me and I'll take care of that. When you're afraid, come back to me and I will give you that peace because that's what he's promised to us. And so when Jesus rebukes his disciples and they worry and they fret, we have to understand that guess what? It's the same thing that happens to us, and it's the same thing that happens to me. That worry and fear gets the best of me. And shame on me when I don't trust in God, that I don't think God can handle this. Shame on me when I allow that fear to become an unhealthy fear, and it consumes my mind, and it takes me away from my relationship with God, because somehow I don't believe that God can handle it. You know, when we think Jesus is walking away from us, here's what we need to remember. Jesus didn't walk away ever. He only had to run to his father and tell him, it is finished. Because when he said it was finished at the cross, he said, my death has now satisfied the wrath and the justice of God. And because that has been satisfied, you can be back in a relationship with me. And I promise you, I will take care of you. 
for now and through eternity. And so just as God reminded and Jesus reminded his disciples and he gave them the physical testimony when he said, look at my hands, look at my feet. And he said, remember all of the scriptures, the law, the prophets and the psalm all spoke about it. Guess what? Jesus gives us the same physical and scriptural testimony. Because as we sit in this time period, it may be new to us. You may be saying to yourself, I have never seen anything like this before. But you know what God's saying? Seen it all before. It's happened before, and I've gotten my people through it. A few years ago, again, we probably were thinking the same thing when Larry passed away. And here we are several years later, and guess what? The church is still here. It didn't crumble. It didn't fall apart. The gospel of Jesus Christ has continued to be shared because the men and the women have committed their lives to Jesus and fulfilling that promise. And don't get me wrong, as the church has weathered that storm, it doesn't mean that we're out of the woods again. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect right now. We will have our rough seas. But this church will again weather this storm. And you know how? Because I was told in the scriptures. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, 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 listen to this. We will not fear. And though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging... We will not fear. This was a promise that God made to us. Does God break a promise? No. Then shame on me when I worry that somehow he broke that promise. Tony Evans, a prominent pastor, said this. He said, when... When bad things happen in our lives, we get discouraged. And that discouragement turns into despair. And then despair turns into depression. And then depression turns into death. Why? Because we lose hope. And I think that's how those disciples were. They got discouraged. And they despaired. And they were depressed. And they thought on the other side of that door was death coming to get them. But then Jesus showed up and they saw the resurrected Savior. And then what did they have? Hope. Their faith was strengthened and their faith was encouraged. And we shouldn't feel hopeless anymore. I get it. It's, it's bad right now. There's a lot of things that are pushing in, especially if you're going to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of fears that you may have in your mind right now and in your heart. So here's what I want you to do. Grab a piece of paper right now, a little piece of scrap paper. Go ahead. If you don't have one, look around. Maybe someone's got one for you. Anything. You don't, it doesn't need to be a lot. And I want you to write on that piece of paper, what is it that you fear? And you don't have to show anyone. This is between you and God. But write your fear down on that piece of paper. 
I have my fear. Because as I was getting ready to preach this morning, I had to stop and pray and say, God, take care of my fear. I'm not exempt. I'm not perfect. So here's my fear. You take your fear, and I want you to crumple it up in your hand. I want you to hold that fear tight. Crush it. Crush it in your hand. Because when Christ went to the cross, he conquered our fear. And that fear will not have any hold of you. Because Jesus owns our fears. And when we let Jesus own our life, we don't have to fear. Let me just end it with this little bit here. This church is not dependent on you and me. And praise be to God for that, because if it was, it would have fallen apart. But this church is dependent on the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what scripture has taught me? You can't kill Jesus. So I'm going to end this in a very profound way, guys. One final thought to think about. This is from VeggieTales. God is bigger than the boogeyman, is he not? Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive me. I worry, I stress, and fear gets a hold of me. And it keeps me awake at night. And I think about things that I shouldn't, Lord, and I, I take away the glory and rob you of who you are. God, you made a promise that nothing would ever happen to us, that you would be with us for now and all of eternity. And it doesn't mean that everything goes perfectly exactly the way that we want. But you promised to be our father and you promised to take care of your children. And I pray for us right now that as Christians, we would be emboldened to stand against this world that we would be emboldened to stand against the fears in our lives because, Lord, you have given us peace and we thank you for that. Lord, may we call upon our brothers and sisters when it becomes too much. May we be willing to go before you and confess out to you and cry out to you and say, God, I just need a little bit more of that testimony. Reveal yourself to me. Take me to your word. And Lord, my ultimate prayer, though, in all of this is that as you have conquered our sin at the cross, God, that if you have conquered our fears, that we would boldly go forth and praise and glorify you with our lives and that nothing in this world will ever take that away from us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you and we love you. Amen.